It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. If you guys have your Bibles tonight, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 16. The title of the study tonight is Provision in the Wilderness. We've been studying Moses and the Israelites now as God has taken them out of Egypt. The biggest trial that they felt they had in their lives was removed. God had taken them from bondage and set them free. And this was done through the miraculous works of Jehovah. God, through 10 plagues, taking them out by the blood of the lamb, they put it on their doorposts. This destroyer passed over them. They left Egypt, went to the Red Sea, were backed up against an ocean, the Egyptians coming against them. And Moses looked up and prayed, and the Lord split open the Red Sea, and they crossed along the ocean into dry land. And now they began their journey to the promised land, to what God had promised them to, which was the land of Canaan, which would become Israel. But before they got there, they had to journey through the wilderness. Again, the title of my study today is Provision in the Wilderness. You see, we're going to look at how as they journeyed through the wilderness, how God would constantly and always provide for them. It's one of the lessons of a Christian that he must know is that where God guides, God provides. Last week, we saw the bread from heaven giving the Israelites food. In Exodus chapter 16, the first portion of it, which we started in last week, we read how the Lord told Moses that he had heard the complaints of the Israelites. And he told Moses to explain that their desire for meat would be met at night and that in the morning they would have all the bread that they desired. And just as God said that very evening, quail flew in and covered the camp. Now, perhaps through nature, a migration was taking place in which the quail flew through the wilderness. But either way, God is sovereign. He knows how to bring his animals right at the perfect time for the Israelites to encounter so that it, they can have that provision of food. God works supernaturally through the natural at times. And it's even more of a wonder when it is just a straight miraculous event. You see, in the morning, there was dew around the camp. And as that dew began to evaporate, a flaky substance, which was fine as frost, it would cover the ground so that the Israelites would come across it and, and say, what is it? Mana. Literally, the Hebrew word manna means what is it? 
And Moses would tell them, this is the food that the Lord has given you to eat. Showing them, look, God is providing for you. God is our provider. I'm thinking of Jehovah Jireh, the the meaning behind that word, the Lord who provides. Taken from Abraham when he was about to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, his true son whom God promised to him, his promised son. And as he was following the commandment of the Lord to do so, God testing his heart, God sending an angel to then stop him for he had completed the test, said, Abraham, don't harm the lad. For now I know that nothing that you have, you will withhold from me. You see, the Lord provided then the ram caught in the thicket. Abraham even prophesied without even knowing it, saying, son, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Just as Jesus did on the cross for our sins, there has been a provision met. The greatest need that we have is salvation. Everything else, the things of this life that we so often worry about, what are they in comparison? And then there's the eternal perspective on the things in life that echo into eternity. Christ has also met the provision for even those things. We have one life and it will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. You see, the Lord was providing for his Israelites, his children. So this is where we pick up in our text, right in the middle of of Exodus chapter 16. We're going to start with verse 16. It says, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's own need, referring to the manna. One omer for each person. According to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it, Till morning. So that amount, an omer of manna for each person in the household. It's the same as really a, a gallon or two quarts. And there is this act of actually physically going out there in the wilderness and picking up this flaky substance, the manna, the bread, and gathering it for your family. And it was supposed to be done daily, every day. You see, every day they would go out in faith, expecting God and hoping for God to provide for them. God didn't want them to save the bread until the next day. They were either to consume it or throw it away. There were no leftovers. I love leftovers personally. My fiance does not. She throws my leftovers away. (laughs) But 
the Lord wanted them to get into the habit of depending on him daily. You see, if they were to store up and, and have all this food, perhaps they would forget that it was God who was providing for them. And we see this manna, this bread, as a symbol of the word of God. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, the prophet writes, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. You see, God's word, it brings joy and rejoicing. That daily bread that we're supposed to take in, dependent on the word of God every day, every morning, every night. You see, we can't just read through the Bible and say, okay, that's it, we're done. We got our fill of it and we don't never have to read it again. No, the Lord wants us to have that daily portion where we are dependent on his leading and guiding for our lives. And it, that by doing that, it brings joy in your heart. Anxiety is removed. Goodness comes into your life. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, do you remember when Satan tempted Jesus? He said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, it's not just the physical bread that we need to focus on, but what is more important is the eternal value of the spiritual bread. This is what gets us through life. In Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14, it says, For though by this time... You ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Paul writing to the Corinthians saying, look, you guys need to take in your spiritual food. You need to grow in your spiritual diet. You guys can't just live off of milk. You see a baby when they're born, all they eat is milk because that's all that they can take. That's all that they, their physical bodies are mature enough to absorb is that milk. But then as a child grows, eventually he needs to develop the, that other food, that appetite, so that he can grow strong or she can grow strong. And then w when you see people who are malnutritioned, it's because they're not getting that solid food. Now, Paul uses that as a, an example, an illustration 
of our spiritual walk. You see, we can't just study only John 3.16. You could go in depth of it, but you can't only, if you want to be a mature believer, study the New Testament. You need to absorb the fat, the meat, the bone, the, the, the sharpness of the word of God fully and completely from cover to cover, beginning to end. You see, you, you get a whole picture of the full counsel of God. And this is what Paul taught. He said, I have not failed to teach you the whole counsel of God. You see, we need to grow and be mature in our walks as believers so that we can then begin to teach others, teach our family what it is God is calling us to in our personal lives. Now, in John again, John 6, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. One of the awesome seven I am statements that Jesus makes was him saying, I am the bread of life. He wanted us to realize that we were to hunger for God himself, that is Jesus. We were to hunger for Jesus himself so that we wouldn't crave the things of this life that cause us to fall into sin, to worry so much, to be filled with fear and anxiety. You see, with Christ, when we follow after him and when we hunger for him, he gives us a spiritual fulfillment. He brings into our life contentment. When you have that spiritual fulfillment, many times God then begins to align the physical fulfillment. You see, a drug addict who who comes to know the Lord and suddenly, because they are now enjoying the relationship with Jesus and no longer the sin of the world of, of a drug-filled life, their physical body begins to change immediately. Their countenance, the, their, their body, and as they begin to, to follow after Christ, God does a miracle in their life. And that's the power. It starts off spiritual. And the physical follows. See, I heard once a believer share his testimony of how he was a glutton and he struggled. He, for him, it was literally sin that he was constantly eating to fulfill that emotional need. And he finally wanted to break free of this vice. So he took to sitting down at the table when he would come into that, that vice again. And he would begin to consume the word of God. He would just read and read until he no longer craved the unhealthy food that he so long desired after. This is what we must do. When we come across those areas in our life of temptation, of of struggle, follow after the Lord Jesus, his righteousness. He said that he would fill us 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And you're going to grow. You're going to mature. You know, one thing about maturity is God doesn't expect you to just develop overnight. He takes you step by step, which I love that about him. I I remember when I first became a Christian, I had a bunch of Bible studies on my, my iPod at the time. And I had some studies from Chuck Smith where he went in depth on just a st- a topical studies on the Holy Spirit. And when I first started to, to hear them, I remember for me, I felt like I was in a science class and I was like, man, this guy, this old man is, I can't understand this. And it wasn't until later that I started to, to understand a little more theology that I, I went back and listened and, and was able to grasp that depth. But I needed to be taken to a place of maturity Continuing on in verse 20. You see, as these Israelites were now being fed the manna, gathering it up for themselves day by day, in verse 20 it says, Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. So this is what God did with that bread that they saved. They, they gathered too much and they saved it for the next day. It began to breed worms and, and it stank so foul they had to probably throw it out, which they should have done in the first place. And then the rest of it, the Lord would just melt it that was still out there. You see, they were only to gather what they needed. Now, it's interesting to note that up until this point, it doesn't show God as being upset or angry at the Israelites and their immaturity. But we will see that Moses does get very angry with the Israelites because of their immaturity and their disobedience. In verse 22, And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they let it, laid it up until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today for today is a Sabbath day to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. So again, this Sabbath day, it's being instituted. Originally, when God created the heavens and the earth and then the the stars in the sky and it went through that seven days of creation, well, six days of creation, and then on the seventh day, God rested. 
because he was complete with his creation. He was done with all of his creation. And he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he had fulfilled what he had done. And this was to be a model that we also are to follow after. Six days we spend, I'm sure you guys are busy, busy, and we have work, we have jobs, we have school and our family parties. If you happen to be Hispanic like me, it seems like every other week someone's birthday's popping up. And we find ourselves just going, going, going. And if we don't stop and put time aside to focus on God, on his word, on worshiping him, then we're going to be in autopilot mode. Our flesh is going to grow. Our spirit is going to become weak. And we're going to be walking then in the flesh and not in the spirit. You see, they were only to gather what they needed on that day. Because they needed to depend on God for tomorrow and not on their own stockpile of bread. Remember David's prayer? He said, Lord, don't give me so little that I am tempted to still. And don't give me so much that I am going to forget you. See, God does not want us to be independent of him. He wants us to be dependent on him. Remember that verse, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So it doesn't say trust in yourself. It says trust in God with everything, all your desires, your will. Trust God with all those things. Put them into his hands, into his sovereign plan. And don't lean on what you think is good or right for yourself, but lean on the word. Trust in God's mind and what he is planning for you. And we could do this with our our daily life. I think there's, I would not doubt that if you did a study on people who took just one day out of the week to just rest, not to do work, I bet you those people live much healthier lives, even more successful lives than people who go seven days a week without rest. Look at verse 27. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. See, the laws of God were for the good of his children. Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. 
You see, God instituted that day of rest so we could have fellowship with him personally. Now, what the religious leaders ended up turning that into was a a way to show off their works. And they'd made all these crazy laws about how they were not going to do any sort of work at all. They wouldn't lift a finger as to follow the Sabbath, but they did it in a way so that they could put themselves on display to be shown to be righteous and prideful. You see, that was the self-righteousness that God hated. And we're not to have that type of legalism in our lives. God has set us free and given us freedom. In verse 31, and you know, I want to say that There was a season in in my own personal life when on Sunday nights, I would work. But I was making sure to take time and rest. And I was also making sure to take time on Sunday mornings. I was going to, to my church services and then even on Wednesday nights, making that time. And many of those weeks, I would just take a day where there wasn't work. And you need to have that rest, that Sabbath. Remember, Paul would end up having to write to the the New Testament church and telling them, look, some people want to worship the Lord on Saturday. And some people want to worship the Lord on Sunday. But every day is the Lord's day. That was the point that Paul wanted to get across. So we don't need to get so fixated on it. Oh, it's got to be Saturday. There's, There's a whole sect of Christianity that believes we're only supposed to worship on Saturdays. Again, we're not to make this a legalistic thing. It's about your devotion to the Lord being true, being personal. In verse 27, now it happened, I'm sorry, verse 31, and the house of Israel called its name manna, And it was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So that's pretty cool to me. It's probably some sort of sweet, flaky sort of rice cake. It reminds me when my mom used to make this cream of wheat and she added sugar to it when I was a kid. And I I just loved the sweetness of it. It was cream of wheat. It was good. And as these Israelites are finding this, they, they like it too. It's that sweet way for they're saying, what is, manna, what is it? It's good. Eat it. In verse 32, then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord had commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. The manna that we just read about, it was put into a jar And God said, look, you're going to save this bit of manna. And God preserved it. And it's going to be a sign 
a testimony to how the Lord provided for the Israelites through the wilderness experience. And later it would be placed into the Ark of the Covenant along with the Ten Commandments, along with Aaron's rod that budded. Now, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. Maybe Indiana Jones found it, maybe not. But I do wonder if we did find it, man, how, what a sight that would be. What would happen? I think the reason, too, why perhaps God has not allowed it to be found is because people probably would make a church around it and worship it. And if they did find it, I would not want to be around when they opened that thing up. Maybe after they opened it up and people survived, and maybe I'd go take a look, but not at first. In verse 35, And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an epath. Man, 40 years in the wilderness, the Lord was going to provide for them. They're not there yet. This is only a month, remember, after they had left Egypt. And they're going through the trial now of needing water and food. And they're coming to Moses complaining, saying, we need water, we need food. But they were going to endure this for 40 years. Later on in Deuteronomy 29, God would say, and I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink that you may know that I am the Lord, your God. See, God is reminding them that he keeps them through the wilderness experience. An excerpt that I recorded from George Mueller. He was a, a pastor a long time ago. I believe in the 1800s. George Mueller had these orphanages built by prayer. An excerpt from one of his... Uh, Biographies, it says, The children of this orphanage are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat. The house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller. George asked her to take the 300 children in the dining room and have them sit at the tables. He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide food for the children as he always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you. I will bring it in. Soon, there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the will was fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk, 
and George smiled as the milkman brought in ten large cans of milk. It was just enough for the three hundred thirsty children. See, if George Mueller, just a simple man who prayed, can have faith, so can any of us. There's power in prayer. You see, to wait on the Lord, not to be anxious, but to trust that he is going to get you through this wilderness experience that perhaps you find yourself in today. That wilderness experience, symbolically, we see the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. That was the world, symbolically. Sin, Satan, coming out of there, going across the Red Sea, And before they go to the promised land, God takes them through the wilderness. And that wilderness experience, it's symbolic of a a time of testing that the Lord has to do in our lives. And through the wilderness, sometimes the flesh arises. There's complaints. There's struggle. There's doubt. But God is using this so that we can see and learn to depend on wholly on him, fully. And God wants us to get us to that place where once we just surrender to him, then he can take us to that promised land, a land of victory, where there's still battles in the promised land, but victory with Christ. Now in chapter 17, it says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The wilderness is testing not only the people. The wilderness is testing Moses. Forty years, 40 is the number of judgment, the number of trial, the number of testing. And here the faith of Moses and the Israelites is being tested on what they believe their life is dependent upon. The people are thinking that their lives depend on food and water. And God is showing them, no, I will provide your food and water. Depend on me. Remember what Jesus said? He said, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own troubles. Worrying isn't going to add anything to you. He said, look at the birds. I feed them. And you don't see them worrying. 
I, I make the, the fields and the, and the flowers beautiful and you don't see the flowers worrying about where they're going to get food and water from. How much more so do I care about you than the birds? He said, all the, the world worries about all those things of the world. But he said, but you seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things I will add to you. It's the word of the Lord to focus on God, his righteousness, building his kingdom. And God is going to provide. You see now, we cannot put our trust in this life, in our job, in our relationships, in our our finances, we can't put our trust in our, our personalities, our gifts, our talents. We can't put our trust in our government, especially not our government. We have to put our trust in God and be dependent upon him. And if you find yourself where the Lord is showing you that all those things that I, I just listed are, are, are failing. It's because God wants you to get you to that place where you finally surrender. Absolute surrender. If you ever want to pick up a good book or a good audio book, look up a- Absolute Surrender by Andrew Murray. In verse 5 now. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. You see, we see the lack of water. We see the lack of fine food. This wilderness, it's, it's a desolate place. And we could see the steps that Moses has to take leading close to 2 million people through this journey. And Moses is taking steps of faith. But Moses is also being tested in his patience with the people. We don't observe God becoming angry with the people. But again, we will observe Moses getting angry with the people. You see, this is the wilderness process And you cannot have a testimony without testing. In verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. So he called the name of the place, Massah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So God tells Moses, look, go to this rock and strike the rock and then water is going to come out of it. And that's exactly what happens. You see, this was not only a miraculous event where now the children of Israel are seeing, oh my gosh, the Lord has provided water 
in a desolate place, out of a a rock of all things. And it was going to be a symbol of a future event. For we know that this rock that Moses struck, it's a symbol of Christ being struck. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual food, drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, Christ was crucified once and for all. He was struck, smitten. He had the whip put on his back. He had the nails put in his hand, a crown of thorns on his head, a spear to his heart for the sins of the entire world, for the sins of you and I personally. In Romans chapter 6, verse 10 through 11, it says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon yourself to be dead means realize and take account that your old sinful life has been put to death on the cross. And we are no longer to follow after its footsteps, but we are to be made alive and walk in the newness of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this was to happen once and for all. Christ isn't continually put on the cross and killed again and again. It was once for all mankind. His sacrifice was enough. This rock that was smitten in the Jewish ceremony, they would take on a certain day of a holiday, of a celebration, during one of the feasts, they would go out to the temple on, on the stone ground, and they would have this jar full of water, and they would throw the jar on the floor, and the, the jar would break open, and the water would flow forth. And that breaking of the jar was symbolic of the smiting of the rock. And the water that flowed forth was symbolic of the water that gave life to the Israelites. And then right again, when that happens in the New Testament, they go through that feast, they have that ceremony. And as they do that ceremonial breaking of the jar and the water, Jesus stands up and says, I am the water of life. You see, Jesus was going to be smitten and bring forth life to us that we can have 
for eternity, forever, that cannot be taken away. You see, a man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's Christ Jesus. Pretty soon here, we're going to be celebrating the victory that Christ has given us in his resurrection. So stay tuned for that. There's going to be some of small little events coming up in regards to Good Friday, Palm Sunday, Easter. In verse 8, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. One thing I love about the relationship between Moses and Joshua is Joshua's just down. He's ready to go fight in battle, risking life and limb. But knowing that God has told them to go to battle, that they were going to be victorious. And so now as they fight the Amalekites, which by the way, were always a picture and a symbol of the flesh, of sin. When you study their their history, it gets dark of how far evil and twisted their ways were, the Amalekites. It says in verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 11, and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So now here's another miraculous event in the Bible. As Moses has his hand lifted, the Israelites are victorious. When he begins to get tired and put his hands down, all of a sudden the Israelites begin to lose. And they realize this, like, whoa, Moses needs to have his hands up in surrender to the Lord. And then Aaron and Hur realize this, so they come alongside Moses' arms, and they're holding up his arms. They're saying, sit down on this rock, and we're just going to hold your arms up for you so that the Israelites can have victory. And God honored that. And he allowed them to be victorious. This is a picture of ministry. You have a man whom God anoints to lead. And you have his helpers coming alongside and and lifting up his hands. I'm reminded to pray for leadership, to pray for the pastors of your church. 
Because there's battles to be fought and spiritual warfare going on. Look at verse 13. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Again, the Amalekites were going to be wiped out. They were a symbol of the flesh. Remember King Saul? He too was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites. God had called him to do so, told him to do so. But when they went to go battle against them, he saved the king alive and the best of his, his sheep and his oxen so that he could sacrifice to the Lord. And then when Samuel the prophet came to King Saul and they were making sacrifice, the prophet said, King Saul, what have you done? What is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? And King Saul says, well, I, you know, the king is good. We'll keep him alive. Don't worry. And uh, we're going to keep the, the best of the oxen so we could sacrifice to the Lord. It's all good. And besides the people, they, they told me I should do this. So I'm, I'm doing it for them. And the prophet Samuel said, no, because of your disobedience, the Lord is going to rip the kingdom from your hand. And at the end of King Saul's life, it's the Amalekites who wipe him out. He falls on his own sword. And then at the end, an Amalekite comes to him and finishes him off. It's a symbol of what happens when we allow the flesh to stay alive in our life. You see, King Saul didn't completely wipe out the flesh, but he allowed the enemy to have a foothold in his life. Because of that, it came back to haunt him and destroy him. So we are not to have any bit of the flesh in our lives. We are completely to stay far away from sin. In verse 15, And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You see, that word, the Lord is my banner, the name for that is Jehovah Nisi. It could also mean the Lord is my miracle. The Lord is my banner to prepare them for war and encourage them against the spiritual enemies. Some commentators have said that perhaps as Moses had his arms raised, there wasn't a physical banner there. And as Aaron and Hur looked out and they could see the nations of Amalek approaching with their banners, the enemies coming against them, someone would ask, where is our banner, Moses? And Moses would say, the Lord is our banner. He fights our battles. We don't need some banner that man has made. The Lord himself will go out before us. He will be our miracle. He will prepare us for war and encourage us in the spiritual battle. Look at 
And as Joshua goes out there and fights for Israel, he's just submitting to what Moses has been told from the Lord. You see, Moses is going to fail. Later on, again, they're going to come across the same situation where there's going to be a need for water. And God's going to go to Moses and say, Moses, go and speak to the rock. Not strike it, but speak to the rock. And Moses, he's going to go in in anger because the people are complaining against him. He's going to say, you wanted water? And he's going to get his, his staff and strike the rock. And the water still comes forth. And then God says to Moses, okay, Moses, come over here. We need to have a little little talk. He says, Moses, I said, speak to the rock. And you struck the rock. Why did you do that? Now all the Israelites, they think that I'm angry with them, but I'm not angry with them, Moses. You misrepresented who I am to them. Because of this, Moses, I'm not going to let you enter into the promised land. And that heartbreak that Moses had to have felt in that moment. So much so that later on he would beg God, please let, let me just go into the promised land. And God would say, Moses, I don't want to hear you ask that anymore. You see, Moses had his failures. And it was all working out so that Moses can learn his own tests so that he can be dependent not on his flesh or his anger but on God. So may we be dependent on the Lord for provision. May we just fully surrender in the season that we're in. Whether you're in a season of wilderness, whether you're in a a season of, of the promised land, a season of prosperity, devote your life, all that you have, to the Lord. And say, God, whatever you want to do with these things. And trust him that he has your best intention in his mind because he knows what's best for you. Your plans, my plans, In comparison to God, they're always way worse than what God has planned for us. God's plans are always better. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love your grace, your mercy. Again, Father, we pray and ask that you would go before us in the seasons that we're in. Lord God, provide for those who are in need of provision. Forgive us, Lord, and our sins. May Christ be our desire our spiritual food, our fulfillment. I pray for Redeemed Church that you would do miraculous things with, Father, those who are part of your church.
We love you, Father. We trust you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you like prayer and would like to make that commitment fully and completely to Christ, and you would like to be led in that prayer, please just message us. If you want to draw near to the Lord, we would love to pray with you. But may you go out this week knowing that God is your provider. Jehovah Jireh. There's nothing too hard for him. And be praying for us as we now are entering into just a some of the end of the chapter of being here at this house. God is going to continue to lead and guide us. But we love you. And God loves you even more. So let's sing this last song. Sunday morning in the backyard.